surprised by the, the he would go out and, and preach at the RAF uh, gatherings, and, and people there listening to him would not understand the things that he was saying um, because he's using highly academic language uh, in, in the way he's talking. So what he had to do eventually is, is he really, really um, wanted to be able to talk to the everyday man. And he eventually did. And I think that's why he's so effective. So mere Christianity is effective because he's talking to the common man sitting around their kitchen table. And, and I think that what happens is when you get into apologetics proper, defending the faith proper, what you tend to do is you veer towards the complex. You veer towards uh, academic language. Um, most of the guys I like Van Aristotelian uh, and Vantillian categories. Like you start talking that way to a guy who fixes cars for a living, he's generally not going to know what you're talking about, right? And and what I find, um, I was just recently told by a pastor, he's like, you know, it must be nice to, to be a pastor at one of those reformed churches in middle class America where everybody essentially comes to you uh, and they're not a train wreck. And I was like, what do you, you gotta, you can't just say something like that to me. You gotta explain what you mean, right? So the people in our, you know, in, in our church, what, they tend to be what? Well-fed, well-educated people who, for the most part, have their lives together, right? I mean, there's not a lot of um, baby daddies running around that I gotta deal with. What I deal with are marriage problems, where happily married people would have some issues that they wanna work on. And so in our circles, I think we, we, we underestimate the fact that we ourselves are people who don't speak in the vernacular. We, we have a difficult time with the everyday man. Because, and, and how many of us, though, are a little challenged by that because we think we are the everyday man? Sure. Yeah, we all do, right? But raise your hand if you've had some college education in this room. Exactly. Okay. Now, raise your hand if you've ever had to live... Well. Why am I going to put you on the spot like that? I almost said something horrible. Have you ever looked in your car? I almost asked that question just well, now. I, no, no, I apologize to everyone. My guess is if, we, if I actually was indecent enough to run that poll, most of us have never lived in our car, right? I mean, the worst I ever had to do was move back to my parents' house. Now, how many of you have had to move back with mom and dad? Okay, see? So we have this... So I'm not, I don't want to get into systemic racism and the fact that we're all whiteies and so we don't really have problems. That's not what I'm trying to argue. But what I find so compelling about C.S. Lewis is that he realized very quickly that he was not a common man. He, he, he's not a blue-collar guy. He's a white-collar guy. And he had to learn how to talk to people around their kitchen tables. And I think it's very important for us to recognize this fact. Um, this is like if I, I, when I first started here, I, buy a, I went down to the gas station, I bought a pack of smokes. And I went over to the park, and I just looked for homeless people. And um, I learned this from my father. He was a policeman. Two guys standing around smoking cigarettes will talk about anything. Okay? So you tend to get people unclammed up in <laughs> a cigarette. So I was like, well, I'm just going to go over here and talk to these homeless people. So I go over there, and I start handing out cigarettes, and nobody talked to me still. <laughs> and it's like, kind of like, where do you – so you like th this park better than that other – Park? <laughs> do you find the garbage cans on this corner to be fruitful? I mean, like, what do you, what do you say, right? And, and I think that a lot of us, a lot of our outreach is hamstrung by this idea. Um, is, is we think we're everyday common blue-collar folk, and we're not. And I think we have a lot to learn about this. Can you talk about the faith in the vernacular? Laura? I guess I think we're pretty much everyday. I mean, you know, I, I really do think we're blue-collar, but... Yeah, no, I would, I would argue. 
No. We're tanned white collar, maybe. I'll give you that. We're not rednecks, right? The neck is not red from working. It's tanned from vacation. Uh, that was another joke. I had another guy talking to me this week who I know well, and he's thinking about going in the ministry, and he's like, I mean, I see you running around with your wife in Portugal and everything. It seems kind of nice. I was like, that's not one of my lives. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm not a redneck. I'm a tanned white collar dude. That's, that's what it comes from. So I want you guys to think about this. How do you talk about the faith in the vernacular? What does that mean? I mean, you can try talking with children about it. That can help. Because if you can't explain something to a five-year-old, you don't really understand it, R.C. Sproul would like to say. So that's a good place to start. We, you know, There's a lot of kids here. But if we talk to them about their lives and about what's going on with them, and can you communicate about serious issues, the issues they think are serious, um, in a way that they understand them? It's a good start. Otherwise, um, I think if we thought about these things and we thought about the language we were using and, and, and we practiced describing them in a way that was more popular and more common to everyday people, I think we would have an easier time of it, right? Because say you have coworkers. What do all of those coworkers have in common with you? Your job. The work. Yeah. The work. There you go. And it's amazing how far you can get just talking about work. I always... I learned this from Dean. He was very good at it. He would go and play hockey, and, and at lunch hockey, and, and, and over time, right, they're just a couple of dudes playing hockey. It's kind of like the cigarette idea. Um, as I used to say, because I worked at a courthouse, and I was one of 17. I was the only male, seven, 16 women. So I used to say it was just the girls and I standing around talking. Everyone always thought that was very funny. Um, but I've, I always figured my conservative buddies would be very distraught over my saying that, but the gals and I used to just stand around the water cooler talking about work, and it's amazing how far you can get with that kind of thing. What else do you guys think about translating things into the vernacular, the everyday language of people? I, I feel like you kind of get to know, you have to know the person before you really just jump in. Yeah, it's true. Because how many of you guys feel the pressure to go out there and just, like, like, Outreach is talking about the gospel. That's, no, it's not me. <laughs> well, I think that's what we've been taught for many years, right? Yeah. You, you work the conversation into, like, what do, you, what's the, what do you fear most in this world? I remember that was a question Dean wanted me to ask people. I'm, I'm not asking anyone that question. <laughs> like, I might ask my wife that question <laughs> because I know her well enough, but I'm not just asking the gals at work, like, what do you fear most in life? <laughs> Um, so yeah, we have to think about these things, I think, differently than what we have traditionally done. And, and so you got to think about the paradigm that people have, right? The assumptions that they're already making, things that they already think are, is true. And you have to think about communicating in the vernacular. Okay, the everyday speech of men. Now, philosophically, what we're going to get into now, this is um, maybe some low-level stuff here. But now what we're going to talk about is the uh, argument by desire. So what, what is the argument by desire as C.S. Lewis understood? You guys remember? You guys read this book? I have it written down. I, well, well, he, okay. I don't know that I really understood what he was trying he to was say. He was saying we have this hole in our heart or a hunger for something go. more. And if there weren't something more, we would not have that. Yes. That was his. So that's it. There you go. So if, if I crave water, I crave water, what does that tell me? 
It tells me that the world has water in it. And that you need it. And that I need it. And that my body needs it. Right? So if you crave things, well, I don't know if this works for cigarette smoke, but anyway. Um, there are certain, you have certain cravings that tell you something about the world in which you live and the person, that, the kind of being that you are. So if you have yearnings for things that cannot be satisfied in this world, it tells you you were not made for this world. Um, and there's a verse in, I didn't write it down in Job, where he talks about, talks about the fact that God put eternity in our hearts. Now, how does the triune God, what does it mean that he puts eternity in our hearts? I guess in heaven, it goes something like, um, our hearts are restless until we rest in you. That's right. That's Augustine. That's how Augustine put it. Our hearts are restless till they rest in you. So in one sense, the, the triune God in every human being put eternity in their hearts. He put a, a chasm there. He put a space there that could fill eternity. Um, or that you could put eternity into. Right? And, and so this is, this is, I think, we get into categories like how are two persons become one flesh? How are three beings one God? Um, how, how is God outside of time? Uh, these kinds of things. What does it mean that we're going to be deified? What does it mean that he could put eternity in our hearts? It's just, right? And then in the New Testament, we talk about the fact that Jesus is in our hearts, that the Spirit is in our hearts, uh, that we are in, in him and he is in us. And, and, it, and it, we start to, I think it boggles the mind a little bit. So what are some common ways that you see right now in popular culture that the eternity in their hearts is showing? Some new movie called The Eternals or something. Yeah, The Eternals. Yeah, yeah. It's a Mar it's a Marvel movie, and so eventually, you know, with comic books, they start out with very simple things. A teenager gets bit by a spider. A dude who wears an iron suit, and then as time goes on, they need more advanced. Right, in in order to sell comic books and movies, the enemies have to get more advanced, and the and the good guys have to get more advanced. And at a very late stage in the comic book world, they created The Eternals. And you're like, oh, oh, it turns out there's these beings living on Earth that are eternal, that have come from somewhere, and they're really going to save us. And so what you get with like pop, pop culture stuff like this is it demonstrates this obsession with some being that's outside of, that's, that's supernatural, that can save us from the, the things that we do ourselves, to ourselves. Um, and, and they are, they're like demigods of some sort that save everyone. I didn't read that far into the comic books, but... Um, another one is I just I saw a video. It's like a seven-year-old girl, and she's with her two moms, and she got the vaccine, and and they're just like crying tears of joy, and they're so happy because now they're gonna live. Like they're like and they're like saying these things to each other like, we're gonna live now. Like you know things it can't get us now, and and, and it was like this moment of liberation for them, this moment of divine liberation where they were given given this vaccine. <coughs> And the three gals there feel like now they're untouchable from, from COVID, right? When they could be sitting there getting COVID. From... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. But, but it demonstrates that, that, that people are looking for something, for security and assurance, right? This is what people want. They want security. Um, they want assurance. People are very concerned about dying. Right? I mean, lately, especially the fear that we see all... I misspelled dying, didn't I? Yes, you did. 
That's if I mean, recognized it. Sloppy and you don't know. What's that? If you write sloppy enough, you won't know. Right, right. <laughs> you do a pretty good job of that. Thank you. <laughs> I miss my calling as a doctor. <laughs> so can you guys think of other, th other ways where uh, the eternity is showing in people's hearts? <laughs> oh, he talked about ethics. Um, that there's, you know, you go all around the world, there are all kinds of different nations and tribes and people yeah. around, across history, and there seems to be a very standard, you know, ethical code, you know, mm -hmm. murder mm -hmm. is bad, stealing is bad, you know, those kind of things. So yeah. Kind of a, how does that work out when we're, if we're evolved with a ball? Yeah, totally. Um, it's that, yeah. Does, it, does anyone know, what are those slaves in China that are Muslim? The Muslims? What are they? The Uyghurs. 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 Can you spell that U -U for me? U-G. U-Y-G-H-U-R. H-U-R. Something like that. So, I, I like this because what I, I've actually been a little shocked by people my age and how they've responded to this. Okay, should we care about these people? Yes. Now, everybody over the over a certain age, I think, is going to audit. Who's a Christian is going to say yes. But you know what I find amongst people my own age who are conservatives who are not Christians? Why? They're just taking care of part of that, right? They're taking care of the Muslim problem. And it's like people who were very affected by 9-11 and the wars in Afghanistan really are like, eh. <laughs> You're like, we do think slavery is bad, right? We keep, <laughs> we keep talking about slavery is bad. And who cares if they're Muslims? They're people who are suffering, right? It's not that we just throw our enemies to the wolves. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, because there's a lot of times it's like, if you think about other wars that have gone on, um, like um, a lot of conservative guys I know are just like, hey, let's let's be uh, let's pull out of the world. Who cares about what goes on in the corner of the world? Let them eat themselves. Like let them devour themselves. But as Christians, I think we assume things. We assume that we have a responsibility to take care of problems that even though they're far from us, we have we we have a, a level of compassion and understanding for people. So we care about these people. But what can we, you know, what can we do for these people besides pray? No, it's all right. It's not that distracting. I will do it every time. <laughs> right, but 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 if why is it that we all know, you know, he gets into the Tao now. He, we all know that it's wrong what's happening to these people. We hear things going on on the other side of the world, and we just know it's wrong. And the people there know it's wrong. And so what, what does this sense of right and wrong, right? If, if, if there's two people, a Chinaman and one of these guys, okay? He thinks this is perfectly fine what's happening. We all agree with this guy that it's actually wrong. Well, how do we know who's right? right? This is where the paradigm really comes into, into matter because the modern paradigm, you're like, who cares? It's all relative. Yeah, we're all just a bunch of Dr. Pepper shaken up. You know, we're just a bunch of chemical reactions bouncing against one another. It's fine. We've got God's laws to go back to. That right. shall not kill. Right. So we have the Ten Commandments in our paradigm. We have, we have the law of, of, of Moses. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Book of James. We understand these things. We understand wisdom and law and how to apply it. And so we can compare between these two and say, okay, this is wicked, what you're doing, and this is terrible, what's happening to you, and we should help you. But, so how is it, right, if you're sitting down, and you're, 
you're with the gals around the water cooler. <laughs> and somebody mentioned something like this, right? How, how about you ask the question that we're always supposed to ask? By what standard is that wrong? I'm curious. You talk about standards. Why is, why is that wrong? Like, I agree that it's wrong, but why? And what you start to hear is people's paradigms will come out as they're explaining this. And generally what you might have is some person who's haunted by Western civilization or haunted by the gospel in some way, and they get that there is a right wrong, but they just have no idea. They've been told there's no, nothing supernatural um, outside of these two people who are just chemical reactions. But, but I think that's, it's, that's what C.S. Lewis is always getting at. He's always like, well, why is this, right? There's, you say it's wrong, by what standard? And I think the, the natural law, as it's called in Christian theology generally, I think it's very helpful. It's very, very helpful to us. Um, why is it that children, little children who've never been taught laws, have a sense of right and wrong? And they usually have a really good sense of right and wrong. It takes a lot of years of cynical adult living in order to undo <laughs> the sense of natural law that we're born with. Um, can I comment on that? Oh, yeah, man. For just, uh, this whole paradigm thing is really interesting to me because um, I think this came up in another book of his that I read, but um, I always thought it would be a stronger argument from, as a Christian to argue that other people's paradigms are like so different from the Christian paradigm and mm -hmm. to show how ours is like clearly so much better. Mm -hmm. better. But Lewis actually says, no, it's actually a, a better argument to see how, how similar most of them actually are. Yes. So one of the, for example, for marriage, lots of people have different rules about like how many women you're supposed to have, but no, but nobody says, oh, you can just have whatever woman that you want. Right. right? That's, that's sort of a, an agreed rule, no matter what religion you go to, it's kind of, there yeah. are different variations of that same general principle. And, right. And that shows that there actually is some, something universal about the values that we Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on that one because he does the same thing with mythology. You take all the mythology and, and the fact that there's so much similarity is a strength to us, not a weakness. Yeah. You take all the law that people, the laws that people have, um, and the similarities of them is a strength to us, not a weakness. Right? They clearly have a sense of right and wrong. Now, there are exceptions to it, but marriage is a good example. Well, why do all cultures think that this is something that you have to have a ceremony for and, and it's somehow different than just living together. Um, and and, and for, even for the fact that people reject it, why not do it? Right? That's what I've had to I, I've asked a number of unbelievers. Why, I mean, at this point, why not? Um, and they're like, why not get married? Right? I mean, they've been together 10 years. they got kids together. There's tax advantages. Like, yeah, right? I mean, like, like tax shelters. Yeah. Just stand alone. Yeah. Like sanctified wisdom here. Um, but, but yet they don't want to do it. And even the rejection of it, there's something to it. Um, because, like, no, I don't want that kind of seriousness in my relationship. I'm like, you live together and have kids. <laughs> but there is this sense that if you're not married, you can get up and leave whenever you want. Um, where even, even with the divorce rates, what they are, it's very difficult. I mean, it's not as simple as just like, oh, okay, I'll right up. I'm, or we're going to do one of those scenes where I throw everything out the window. <laughs> that belongs to you. Um... So, yeah, um, going back to what we were talking about before, the supernatural yearning versus the natural yearning, this natural sense of right and wrong, like these things do not just evolve, right? I, why, why is it that the natural law idea couldn't have evolved? Why, didn't man, why was time plus chance, why is it not going to end in 
a law code. <laughs> they want to say that it does, but why doesn't it? Is it because well, they're, they're going from bottom up instead of top down? I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it here. <clears throat> well, from the very beginning, okay, if you go all the way back to, to man in nature, um, this is what a lot of politi political philosophy starts as, man in nature. Um, and it's they don't really think man started this way. This is just sort of like the argument. Right. Their man was in the, in, in the wilderness. And what was he like? And, right? and, there, and there's two ways of thinking about it. One of them is man was good and then formed societies and society corrupted them. That's, that's one major stream of thought. The other stream of thought is um, man was, uh, he created culture, created society in order to bring order out of chaos. Okay, one, one group thinks that society brought chaos. The other one is thinks that society cured chaos. So, you know, but if, if two guys are standing there and they want, they both want to live in the same cave <laughs> and um, <laughs> they have a dispute about the cave and so one guy picks up a rock and, and bludgeons the other guy and says, well, now it's my cave. And the third guy comes along and is like, that's not right. Like, automatically he's going to say that. that like, no matter how base line you get society. You take it down to two guys stranded on a desert island. There's two people, and between those two people, someone has got to decide who's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. We inherently believe this. Two kids on a playground understand. They're, like What you're doing is not right. They just automatically understand it. So man in any form is going to, is going to react this way. And, and, that, like, and, and they, you know, that didn't evolve that way. It's just inherent. right? Because if, if you go all the way back to the very beginning, again, it's the complexity problem. You take out the idea of natural law, how did, two, how did people live on any level together? It, it, they couldn't. They couldn't. You, you, they have to recognize, even in forming a society, that, okay, there are limits to what I can do and what you can do. So what we're going to agree on together is how much limitation should we put. And when you're forming governments, that's really what you're talking about. All you're talking about is not what the government can do. All, you're talking about what people can't, uh, what the limitation is of other people's rights. Okay, um, uh, uh, because in any society, how would you ever leave your house? Law, what a law allows me to do is leave my house because I assume on some level my wife and my children are going to be there and they're going to be okay. And I can now go to work and it's, I don't, it's not this epic journey to get from my house over here because there's laws on the road. <laughs> if you go back to even when man came here in the wilderness from Europe, right? they had to immediately start figure out, okay, well, how do we divide the plan? How, how do we get the lumber? For a time, they, do, they did collectivism. It's, it's amazing how much collectivism has been attempted over the years, and it does actually work for a short period of time. And then what you have to have are laws, separating properties, separating businesses, separating crops. Um, but it's just, it's natural to man to want to know how far you're supposed to go. Uh, it couldn't have evolved. Um, any questions about that? Yeah. Uh, 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 why can't the modern paradigm supply what we lack? 
if we go back to this idea of eternity in our hearts, um, if, we, if we're talking about a law that we all agree upon, why, why are these things, why can't they be provided by the modern paradigm? What are the weaknesses of the modern paradigm that make these two things impossible? What do you, sorry. Go ahead. Define modern paradigm. What are you referring to exactly? Oh, that's the bottom up Nietzsche, Freud, okay. Marxist. Right? right? This, this bottom not, up. Well, there is no supernatural, there are no absolutes. Right. Yeah, but the bottom up is they're more concerned with community, not individual rights. Yes. Okay. And. Um, so you have the individual and the community. And a few years ago when I did the Trinity class, this is, this is, we, we were talking about the same thing in a different way. Mm -hmm. Because there's this tension now. Like at what point am I just absolutely free unto myself? Okay? We don't want just radically uh, independent Individuals, because then it's chaos. What we also don't want to do is that we absorb everybody into a, into a collective to to a point where they cease to be an individual. Mm -hmm. And the Trinity is always the answer, because the Son is only the Son because there is a Father. His identity exists because of another, right? So I'm a husband because I have a wife. The fact that she exists and is married to me defines who and what I am. So you need community. This is what Paul talks about. Um, somebody's a hand, somebody's a foot. There's only a foot if there's a body, if there's a leg, if there's a knee. Like our, our existence together is what gives us our individual uh, distinctives. And I think that that's what, like you're not really a person, has, has been my argument, unless you become a Christian. You're not really fully a person. Because you don't, because in the body of God, in his, Christ's body, you have, you become a part of this collective that exists in which you have meaning. So when, when you go from unbelief to belief, the body makeup itself changes, but you also come into, in a sense, your inheritance and becoming the person you were always designed to be. And, and so it's only in community that an individual can exist. Now, what you wa don't want is to absorb the person so far into the community that they cease to be an individual. And, and, and again, the triune God helps us. They, they have one will, but they have, they have different things that they're doing. To, to fulfill one purpose, right? So even say the resurrection. All three of them were involved in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. uh, the Father demanded it, the Spirit went out, and he is the one who raised Jesus, and Jesus is the one who receives it and then comes out of the grave, right? And he had to be, what, what he had to do through that whole process was be passive and not do something and let it happen to him. Um, and, it's, and it's interesting, though, because he says, I have the power to lay my life down and to take it up again. Mm -hmm. Which is there? He's speaking of the of the community of the Triune God, mm -hmm. because he himself did not raise himself; the Spirit rose him, raised him from the dead. So, so yeah, this tension, the individual and the community, is I think what the moderns can't. They they have a difficult time because what they want is this collective, right? Like you can see it now. Mm -hmm. How, like it's it went from oh. Um, yeah, you guys don't have to accept this thing. You don't have to like gay marriage. You just have to let them do it. Well, now the fact that we don't even accept it as an idea has become like a thought crime. And so you can see that they want this community, even gay, even homosexuality is an example of this, right? Because mm -hmm. the gay culture, it's like there's no difference. You're, there's two women, 
or two men, and they're the same, and everything's the same, and they respond to everything the same way, and they think the same way. And then in the broader culture, this is what it's all about. It's about getting everyone to think just the same way and act the same way. Yeah. So going back to the uh, Christian culture example, I'm trying to think, because you said if people are in the community but like lose their identity, I'm trying to think of an example of that just in a Christian culture. Like, what does that look like? Of someone losing their identity? Yeah. But it, like being too involved in the community that they don't have any like independence or identity. I'm, trying, I'm struggling to picture with that. Oh, that where you get absorbed into the Christian community itself yes. to the extent that you lose your identity. There, um, well, if, if that was a case where it went too far, what would that look like? Well, yeah, like here's the, it's the Reformation. We'll go to the Reformation. We'll go to Luther. It's fresh on everyone's mind, right? Well, Luther, where do you get off? Like, are you, you're the only one who's saying these things, which isn't true. But you're, you're, everybody else is going along with this. All of us are distracted by the Turks. Everybody's on the same page, and you refuse. You refuse to come along with us. You refuse to be silent and come along for the greater good. And any time that argument is made, you refuse to go along with us for the greater good, is, it, you're in very dangerous waters. And, and, and Luther's response was, listen, unless you convince me by scripture and plain reason, Plain reason. That was probably his most dangerous idea. <laughs> Scripture, everyone, I actually agreed upon that part. Mm-hmm. But by plain reason, I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to recant. I'm not going to go along. And they're like, but the Turks, the Turks are coming. It's like I'm still not going to do it. Well, the Pope said, and all the councils, I'm still not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, don't think for yourself, Martin. Just come along with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And I think any time you get Christian, because I remember <laughs> I was leaving Mars Hill, the elder who prayed for me. Literally, his prayer was, like, like, I felt like I was leaving the church. Not that church. Mm-hmm. The church church. Yeah, church, church. And, the, and he prayed that I'd go out and get my teeth kicked in, and I'd find out what true faith meant. I'd try to know where the real community of God exists. I have since reconciled with that elder, by the way. And he apologized for all the things I'm telling you. Um, and because the gospel always wins. But I remember being in that community and feeling like I was leaving the church itself. Hmm. And it was like, why don't you just come along quietly? Well, because I don't, I think what you guys are doing is wrong, and I'm not going to participate anymore. Or I actually, my argument was even more nuanced than that. I think it could be done better, and so I'm going to go and do it with people who are doing it better. I don't even think what you're doing is necessarily wrong. I just don't want to participate anymore. Um, so it's the same thing with families. Um, I find this kind of tension in parenting. I've, I've had to say this I don't know how many times, but in the Claus house, we root for the Seahawks. When the kids grow up and move out of my house, they can root for whoever they want. They can buy whatever clothes they want with whatever team. But it's like, this is like one of those things. I, I want my kids of me to a certain extent. Like, you can make different decisions later. But if you're in this community, we root for the Hawks. <laughs> and, and, like, I've had, and my wife was kind of like, doesn't that seem a little extreme? And I was like, no. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And what you find when you have teenagers is they're trying, like, you know, little kids are trying to find the boundaries. So are teens. Teens are trying to find the boundaries because they're trying to figure out how much, how much identity do they have in this collective group. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of their faith is their parents' faith? How much of what they like and value is what their parents like and value? And so as you're raising children, you're trying to, to let them, you know, they're, they're part of a community on purpose. But you also are trying to let them understand that they are individual people. Uh, like I have, uh, yeah, my son and I, my oldest son, discovered the first time where we don't agree on a doctor. I was like, man, this is nice. <laughs> I was like, you go with God, son, you're totally wrong. But, <laughs> but it's within orthodoxy, so we're fine. 
Yeah. Was, well, okay, so I was going to summarize all that, because that was great, but so to summarize, the danger of like means and community focus is it can create like uh, like cult offsects of Christianity. Mm -hmm. That's kind of that's kind of the main yeah. thing. So when we're welcoming people into the church, a way to avoid that is to encourage um, basing things on what on the truth of scripture and basing things on, on reason. Is that is that a good way to avoid that? Uh, yeah, and, and I mean I think understanding orthodoxy is 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 a wide, deep river. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the things I like about the CRC, particularly, because you can you can be a Westminster confessionalist. We got a guy who's into the Thirty Nine Articles, and and what we see is that orthodoxy can be expressed in a lot of ways, and and it's all orthodox truth. It's just, but 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 as you too, when you're doctrinally, when you're working these things out, the cultures that the churches is going to look different, and yet everybody's on the same page. So you you want to be very careful, and and what you see in broad cultures is this sort of heresy because like communist countries you're not allowed to think differently you're not allowed to act differently you're not allowed to express anything different than what the state says you can mm -hmm. and you get cults like that you get families like that um, where I, I mean you can I've met families where I'm standing there and I'm like these people are going to rebel out from under this dude as fast as they can because he's holding so tight on everything you're like I just oh my gosh I can it's palpable in the air <laughs> they can start digging a hole out of here um, and, and you see this in companies, you see this in families, you see this in churches, you see this in the broader culture. I, I think it's largely what we're going through right now. They, like, um, silence is violence, right? Your, your ideas are violent. Conservatism is, is radical and it's violent. And I just, this week, <laughs> they're on the talking heads because I don't watch TV. But I'm, I was... I go away from it and I come back and I'm actually beginning to be shocked by what they say. Because mm -hmm. I was like, did that woman just say that these views are violent and dangerous and extreme and radical? And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, just 10 years ago, I mean, you get two talking heads from different opinions, conservative and liberal, and they start talking to each other. But that's like, that's not even allowed anymore. No. It's not even allowed anymore on, on mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and something is now being labeled, right? Parents are going and saying, we don't want CRT in our schools. We don't want this radical sex education. And then the federal government says that they're terrorists. I mean, they literally issued a warning about, it's like, uh, yeah. And, and I think that's, this is the challenge here. We don't live in an age where we have individuals to the point of libertarian libertines, where there's no, right? Imagine, uh, that imagine song. Um, imagine no authorities, right? Above us, nothing but sky, right? <laughs> There's nothing that, that is telling me no. That I am boundless and limitless. And I, and I think um, there's been ages where they've gone through that. I think the Enlightenment had a, there was a lot of guys that were, this was very popular. But now we're back to this. <laughs> well, and the modern paradigm always ends up running in, up against natural law anyways. Yeah. Like you see that in the transgender community. They want to be a part of a community. But within the community, you're valued for your individual oddity. And you can only go so far with that. And then all of a sudden, you have all these girls who were sold a lie that this is a great community. Oh, but all those drugs you're taking permanently change your voice. They sterilize you. Right. They... Right. You take it for more than a year, and it'll do all this stuff. Oh, but you're a part of our community, and they mm -hmm. get so far in, and they're a part of a community where everyone's trying to be an individual within that community. Yeah, right, right, right. 
So you get this sort of wild, radical individualism in the midst of a community. Yeah. Yeah. And for all the surgery you want to do, you still can't have a baby. <laughs> Burn. Burn. <laughs> Birthing persons. Is that what yeah. we're calling them now? Um, so, you know, in this class even, as we, we were talking, we started on at more of the kitchen table. Then we went like super meta on the whole thing. Sorry, Facebook doesn't have a right to that word now, do they? So we went very meta, but let's finish by going back. Like, this is the kind of stuff you have to both be thinking about the paradigm, thinking about these, these tensions, thinking about the Tao, thinking about how people are responding to it. And then what you have to do is go the simple thing of expressing it to people at their kitchen tables. Okay, and think about how to put this kind of stuff in the vernacular. Practice with your kids and then, you know, um, build relationships. I think the, the best possible thing is relationship evangelism. I think it's way more effective. I think it's what, what always works. It's what works internally. Um, I, as, a, as a pastor, it's really interesting because, like, we have a doctrinal statement that is very broad. The, the front door of our church is very wide. But then when you come in here, you hear perspective that's much narrower. Um, and I don't think people realize my doctrinal statement is much narrower than the one that we have at the front door. And what, I always, what I'm finding over years is that it's, it's, like it's funneling everyone into a somewhat more conservative, more orthodox way of thinking about things. And, 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 but what really helps is the relationships you build on the front end. Because people don't even know what's really going on. Um, you preach and teach a certain way. Uh, and and what, what you do is you, you, you move people along. So what, what I've always found, like when I worked with all those ladies at the, at the courthouse, what I did, I, I made sure is I became friends with their husbands, boyfriends, like they became friends with my wife, and like my wife would go out with them. They would go out. Like they do these Tuesday night things after work, and I wouldn't go. My wife would go. <laughs> and they'd all be talking about what was going on at work, and it was funny, and... Um, and now there's like guys from the there that I'm still friends with that and, and so they, they come now and have dinner at our house and we do board games and you can see how how it's moving. I've had an open door policy with a neighbor for seven years, eight years now. And now he's coming over and he's talking about it because he's perplexed about because his nephew is now his niece kind of thing. And and, and he and where did he come? He came down to our house. Um, and I think re, like people aren't going to just sit down and start having deep conversations with you. But if you make if you have relationships and you're broad-minded enough to not be scandalized by, the, <laughs> by secularism, you're also not being influenced by it, you can actually move things along to where you can get to these deeper conversations and learn how to talk to people uh, about their actual lives in, in the vernacular. Okay, any questions? No pressure. <laughs> Just takes decades. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, would you pray for us, sir? Sure. Yes, sir. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time to um, learn more about how you have structured our hearts and how 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 you have we have eternity written in our hearts, and that all that is happening in the world is a reflection and a yearning for you. I pray that we can go forth with that knowledge, with that ability to communicate with other people, and to seek out your image bearers and people who we've also have eternity love their hearts. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.